Hello and welcome to episode 9 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle. My name is Ewan Lawson and this is season 1 of Blokeology. Season 1 is all about running, from getting you started as a complete newbie to exploring new techniques for more advanced runners. Today I want to talk a little bit about evidence in more detail. This is an evidence-based podcast and we've touched on it all the way through when we've talked to guests, when I've talked to John Richmond. But what I want to do today is really take a bit of a deeper dive into some evidence. And I've picked out some research papers which cover the topics of blisters, about gait retraining and about compression clothing. What I hope we'll be able to do is give you a really good idea about some more information about those topics. But as we go along, actually explain a little bit about the strengths and the weaknesses of that research and help yourself to be able to recognize when the research that is presented to you and the information that you hear is useful and when it's actually perhaps going a little bit too far and can't quite be trusted. You can find the show notes at www.blocology.io forward slash 009 and you can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io slash journal. Okay, so let's get cracking. Okay, so the first paper that I've pulled out is one about prevention of friction blisters, which seems like a really tiny little niche topic. But actually, I think it's a really good example of how research is presented uh, and how we need to look at it and work out what makes sense and what doesn't. It's also a topic that is you just wouldn't think of applying evidence to him first at first blush. You might think, what am I going to do about blisters? And you wouldn't think of necessarily checking out the medical evidence uh, and looking into the research. But it just goes to show that I really love this example. That can, you know, Actually, you just will whack a plaster on a blister and that's it. But actually, is that really the best way to manage it? Can you improve things? This is a really good example of a niche where someone has actually tried to pull together the evidence. It might seem like a relatively minor topic, but um, if you've ever suffered any of those tiny little abrasions and blisters while you've been out doing a long day on the hills or a long run or a long ultra, then you will be fully aware of just how miserable it is and how they can completely destroy your ability to enjoy your day. So this was a systematic review. It's in the uh, a journal called Wilderness and Environmental Medicine. Uh, it's called, the article itself is called Prevention of Friction Blisters in Outdoor Pursuits, a Systematic Review. Uh, and the lead author is a chap called Robert Worthing, uh, and they all seem to be based in the uh, United States, in Kentucky. Uh, I, I will, of course, put the link to the uh, article on the show notes, but I'm aware that you may not necessarily be able to get access uh, depending on your ability because i mean the, the complication is that not every single research paper in the world is available to anybody just to look at any time you often need subscriptions and those are available through university libraries or through personal subscriptions there is a movement towards making research openly available open access papers but that hasn't caught on universally yet uh, and i'll try to pick out papers where they are available where possible but it isn't always the case. And, I, and I'm afraid that means I won't be able to put up the PDF onto the show notes uh, unless it is 100% open access. Um, otherwise, I will be breaching all sorts of copyright. 
Okay, so this paper, Prevention of Friction Blisters in Outdoor Pursuits. So they did what you'd classically expect any researcher to do, first of all, is that they defined what they mean by friction blister. Uh, and this is a really nice sciencey kind of description. Uh, here's what the authors suggest. They say friction blisters result from pressure and shear forces causing delamination at the level of the stratum spinosum. Now, the stratum spinosum is just one of the layers in the epidermis of the skin. And delamination obviously means that the layers get pulled away. And we've all had that experience of looking at our feet and we have a blister and you peel the top of it off or the top of it comes off and you can see that clear layer uh, where it's disappeared and where you suddenly have a sensitive, painful defect in the surface of your skin. They actually go as far as offering an equation. But I think the important thing here is that if you can reduce the friction or you can reduce the force or preferably do both, then you actually reduce the chances of blisters. And the kind of things that they looked at to do that are the kind of things that you might think of if you were brainstorming ways to reduce blisters. And they are, you know, you're going to look at the sock material and the type of knit in the sock, whether a different sock layer or system helps. They also looked at lubricants to see if they make any difference. That's a really obvious way to reduce friction, of course. Uh, and they also looked at antiperspirants because if you sweat into your feet, everything gets wet and in fact, actually, that I, I'm not sure if that actually increases friction or it doesn't, re, and it doesn't increase the shear force, but it makes your feet and your surface more vulnerable. It requires less force for that um, layer on the top of your skin to get sheared off. Uh, and they also looked at orthotics, so insoles. Uh, and the authors went through the whole formal process of a systematic review. And what that means is that they agree a strategy for looking for research papers and then they go through that in a very systematic way. And what happens with that usually is it picks up a whole ton of papers that they have to then sift through to work out what is useful to them. And in this case, they found something like 806 titles in 12 languages going all the way back to 1950. And it only took a quick scan with most of these of the title and the abstract to realize that actually most of them were, weren't relevant. So they got it down to about 20 just by doing that. So that's a relatively quick process. They then found another nine that weren't relevant either when they looked in more detail at the papers and they ended up with 11 studies. So that's it. That's the whole sum total of research into friction blisters that is useful that they could find is just 11 research studies. And it gets worse than that because when they looked at it in more detail, now this is a really common problem in research is that they found real problems with bias and bias is a really big, complicated topic. But it's probably worth bearing in mind, it's almost like a precondition of the human state to be biased in some direction or other. And no matter how much we try, there is always a little bit of bias that tends to creep into research studies. And much of it is unintentional. It's not deliberate. It's not malicious. It's not trying to overtly influence the research. It's just that stuff happens. It's just the way you recruit people. That's bias. If you recruit a whole lot of people who are particularly interested and enthusiastic about a particular way of treating a, a disease, then actually they're more likely to look on that positively. And that's a bias. Um, and so they looked at those and they found four of the studies had a real problem with bias. And they found the other seven had, you know, various assorted problems out of the 11 with conflicts of interest. They were generally a bit imprecise or they were part of multiple interventions as well as looking at blisters. They were looking at other things. You know, these papers weren't great. There weren't high quality evidence. 
And again, that's another, just as another aside, that's a whole thing about evidence in medical research generally, but particularly in niche topics like things like around health, fitness, and particularly running, that actually it can be hard to get really good quality studies. And that's not because the people involved in this, the people like Robert Worthing down in Kentucky, they're not good researchers. But actually, these are the kind of studies, or the people, uh, to be fair, Robert Worthing was just collating the studies, but the people who did the actual studies themselves that Worthing and his team looked at, they're not, they're not bad researchers. But actually, there isn't a whole ton of money sloshing around to do big, complex studies into you know, whether blisters can be what's the best way to fix a blister. You're not going to get a lot of research money flooding into that. There's not going to be big grants. It's not going to sustain careers. And that trickles down into the study. So it means they tend to be less, they tend to be done in a, you know, it's not kind of slightly more on a shoestring. It means they will have fewer participants than they might like. They perhaps aren't doing exactly the kind of study that would really be the best possible way to answer it. Perhaps they're doing a survey rather than a randomized controlled trial. And it does mean that you see more and more problems with the quality of the research that makes it harder to, to then draw wider generalized conclusions from that research. So overall, when you look at this paper, they found three studies which had the lowest risk of bias. And it's probably worth just dwelling on those for a minute. One was a randomized controlled trial, but it was not blinded. So that means that the individuals who were doing the study knew what the intervention was. And you could see how that would be the case. It's very hard to put a pair of socks on people or a different pair of socks on somebody without them knowing what the kind of socks that they're getting are. And that was what this study was. They looked at polyester padded socks versus polyester thin inner socks along with a second sock, a cotton wool blend on the outer or standard issue 70% wool socks because this was in officer cadets in Belgium. And basically, they found that the polyester padded socks actually performed a lot better than the combination of socks with the standard issue wool socks. There was a significant difference in blisters. They also found an association between overuse injuries and blisters. And I'm not quite sure what conclusions we can draw from that, but perhaps it just seems that the, it might be something as simple as those who had blisters were having to, you know, biomechanically a little bit altered by what they were doing and that resulted in them being more likely to get injured. Uh, the second of the three studies which had the low risk of bias was a double blind randomized trial in US Army soldiers and they got them to do a 200 minute treadmill march which sounds like absolute torture and they tested antiperspirants versus placebo. So that's a really good way of seeing if not if actually giving antiperspirants can reduce blisters they found no differences whatsoever. Um, and then they did an, another, the third of these three, which had the lowest risk of bias, was another non-blinded controlled trial in endurance athletes. And it looked at whether or not putting, applying tape, taping up your feet at the start of a long ultra, it was 155 mile seven day race, made a difference. And they found a reduction of 40% in blisters in those that taped up their feet. Uh, and 81% of the athletes said they would use it again. In conclusion with this study, what I would say is it's a good lesson for when it comes to medical research. No study is perfect. They all come with some kind of flaws. And that's not a criticism of people or the individuals, but it's incredibly important to bear in mind. And the question is whether or not the flaws are overwhelming and completely compromise the conclusions you draw 
or whether or not you can still get something useful and meaningful from the paper. My advice in this, it does seem that socks, the evidence that the type of socks can make a difference. In this case, a single polyester sock was slightly better. And that does fit with evidence that perhaps synthetic fibers are a little bit better because they help keep you, they help wick sweat away from your feet. However, that said, the double blind randomized trial in US Army soldiers found no difference with antiperspirants. And it, they actually, in terms of the sweat thing, that wasn't really didn't make any difference. I mean, it might be the case that it's simply impossible to put even antiperspirants perspirants on in sufficient degree to stop your feet getting sweaty. And that was why there was no particular difference. So socks seem to be important. But the one really useful study out of this was that taping your feet really seems to be quite good. And 40% reduction in blisters is quite significant. Um, and also it was worth pointing out that 81% of the athletes said if they were to do something like that again, they would tape their feet up at the start. So for me, I'll be taping my feet. If I do anything a bit longer, I'll certainly be taping my feet up and I'll be careful about my sock selection. That's probably about as much as you can say when it comes to preventing blisters in terms of the evidence. Okay, cool. So let's get on to the next paper. Uh, and this is an interesting little one because it's a uh, randomized controlled trial and I wanted to talk a little bit about randomized controlled trials. And now the title of this one is Gait Retraining for the Reduction of Injury Occurrence in Novice Distance Runners. And it's a one-year follow-up of a randomized controlled trial. Uh, and the lead author is Zoe Chan. And uh, she is based in Hong Kong at the Gait and Motion Analysis Laboratory. So the whole thing about gait retraining is that it's about running technique, really. So that's what this randomized control trial is looking at. It's looking at whether or not, if you change your running technique, whether you can actually reduce your chance of getting injured. And they have looked particularly at new runners, at beginners. So this is really valuable for if you're a beginner out there. If you work on your technique at the start, will that help your running, help you reduce your risk of injury? And Because there is quite a significant risk of injury to beginners, particularly in that first year of running. Okay, so one of, that's an important thing about study. Is it relevant to you? And actually, when although the initial title of this seems a bit forbidding, actually, this is a really relevant study. And working out whether or not if you concentrate on your technique, if you're starting out running, will that make a difference? No. So what they did was they, uh, they took 320 new runners from a local running club and they got them to run on a treadmill and they got them to, they allocated them randomly as a randomized control trial. Obviously, um, it wasn't blinded. They knew whether or not they, which group they were in. And they allocated them to either the gate retraining group. And what they did on that group, what the and this is another important point about randomized control trial, is what was the intervention? You've got to look really carefully at the intervention. And in this case, they got them to do two weeks of gate retraining with real-time visual feedback. And what that seems to involve was they ran on a treadmill and they actually had a screen in front of them while they were doing it. And the screen in front of them told them how heavily they were running you know they had a special treadmill which could tell the impact of their feet hitting it and by altering their technique they were able to subtly adjust their running technique so they were running lighter they weren't running as heavily and they were just kind of kept developing that and they kept getting feedback every time they made a little change they could see on the screen whether or not it was making a difference and they did that for two weeks well, obviously not two weeks continually. It was basically a 15 to 30 minute session each time over eight sessions 
over that two-week period. So not a lot of time, you know, 15 to 30 minutes, eight times over a couple of weeks. And then what they've done is they have basically monitored these runners. The other runners did just ran on the treadmill without the feedback. Um, and they looked at these two groups and they followed them up for a year. Now, one of the things about randomized controlled trials, which is well worth bearing in mind, is that it's worth looking really carefully at the follow-up and how long they look at them because researchers are generally in a rush. And again, that's not because they're you know slapdash. or It's because, actually, if you spend a lot of money, you're doing a study, you can't afford, by and large, the way the academic system works to wait five years, 10 years to do proper to do a follow-up over a really long period. But actually, they have at least gone over a whole year here, and that's pretty good. To look at, to follow this up and to check them out a year later, um, is, it, that's pretty reasonable for something that was quite a short and small intervention. Um, and so the reduction, so sorry, the results showed that there was a significant reduction in the, the kind of loading rate, so how heavily the intervention group, the gate retraining group were running. But most importantly, there was a reduction in the uh, running-related injuries in the intervention group. And actually, the group that did all the treadmill stuff and looked at the feedback only had a rate of 16%, but the control group had an injury rate of 38%. And that was clinically significant. It works out as a 62% lower risk of injury compared with control. And I, I think that's really interesting. It's a really... It's a really it's quite a spectacular difference over a whole year for a two-week training program at the start. I think there is the question that you have to ask yourself about randomized controlled trials is whether or not it's applicable to you. Now, if you're an experienced runner, this may not be as applicable because this was looking at beginners and novices who are just getting used to running. But I think the main thing that I would take away from this is the difficulty of replicating this. They had like really fancy special technology there's very few of us get to run on treadmills which give us real-time visual feedback on whether or not we are running heavily. So the lesson from this in terms of the evidence is that, okay, there's a real proof of concept here that actually if you adjust your running technique as a novice, it is possible to significantly reduce your injuries. But the question is whether or not it can be done in a slightly more accessible way. If you just try and concentrate on running any more kind of running lighter, running without clumping your feet down, it's not known whether or not that will then reduce your risk of injury. But that's probably the only option that most of us have. So it's one of those randomized controlled trials that really interesting findings, but there's a real danger that it's hard to generalize. It's hard to go, yeah, actually, if we do some gait retraining, this is really going to fix my injury problem. It's a possibility, but it's often the case of the randomized controlled trials. It's looking at a little niche in a specific set of circumstances, and you have to be careful about drawing wider conclusions. Right, so the last paper I wanted to look at was related to compression clothing. And uh, I've discussed this in the past with John on the, on the podcast, and we mentioned in passing this paper. So I just wanted to quickly look at it in a little bit more depth. And the paper is, is there evidence that runners can benefit from wearing compression clothing? And it's in the journal Sports Medicine. Um, so it's actually a systematic review as well. And they've looked at all the original research on the effects of compression clothing. And they've concentrated on runners. And they were also looking at things like compression socks, sleeves, shorts, and or tights. 
There's a couple of things about this that I think are worth highlighting and make interesting reading and give a little bit of an insight into where we are with compression clothing. Uh, The first thing to mention is that there is a declaration that this study is sponsored by Nike. Um, And as is often the case, the authors have stated that Nike weren't involved in any way of shape or form in the, uh, the writing and preparation of the manuscript. There's that final editorial control that is often a really important part of this. And, uh, you know, I'm certainly not inferring that there's some kind of horrible bias going on here and that this is a piece of propaganda. It's normal within medical research across all sorts of fields for them to be, you know, for there to be someone who pays for it. And it is often industry. It's often pharmaceutical companies. There just isn't enough public money around to fund all the research that can be done. But it's certainly something that's worth bearing in mind. I have some concerns about this paper only in that I think it slightly overstates the effect of compression clothing. Um, And that's the kind of thing that makes me a bit nervous then when you spot a conflict of interest. Um, The conclusion of the authors is that um, our present findings suggest that by wearing compression clothing, Runners may improve variables related to endurance performance slightly due to improvements in running economy, biomechanical variables, perception, and muscle temperature. They should also benefit from reduced muscle pain, damage, and inflammation. Now, I think this is a good example where you have to be extremely careful when you read a paper if you just read the abstract, because that was the conclusion at the end of the abstract. And a lot of people, the abstract is publicly available, even if the, for almost all papers, even if the paper itself can't be accessed and isn't open access, you can't get the full paper, people will often read the abstract. And I think that, that abstract significantly overstates the findings that are within the paper. In particular, if you look at one of the graphs on this, it looks at all the things like running performance, time to exhaustion, strength, body temperature, delayed onset of muscle soreness, and it puts it in graph form. And there are small positive effect sizes in a lot of these studies, but there's a statistical technique that's applied to them, and that's the confidence intervals. And there's a 95% confidence interval. Now, basically, all that does is, because the way that studies are done, there's always a possibility that the findings are due to chance alone. You may just have picked a group of people who happen to be, who happen to have had a difference, which wasn't, in effect, isn't real. So that statistical application is a really useful way to get a feel for how strong that effect size is and whether it's real or not. And actually, in this paper, the confidence intervals are really wide. And in most cases, the confidence intervals cross over zero, meaning that there's a reasonable chance that the effect size isn't real and there just isn't good enough evidence available yet. And you've got to be really careful about suggesting that this definitely makes a difference when your confidence interval crosses over that line. And that's what makes me particularly nervous about the way that some of the information has been phrased, particularly in the abstract. Now, the authors haven't done it so much in the discussion, but to a certain extent they have. You know, in the conclusion in the actual paper, they write, the compression exerts a trivial mean effect on running performance. And I think that's a better way of putting it. There is a tiny effect that probably isn't in the real world significant. You know, it might be seconds on a half marathon or, you know, perhaps a, a minute or two. There is some slightly better evidence that um, of positive effects on psychological parameters when they've looked at them. 
people seem to have a large positive effect about leg soreness during the running and the recovery when wearing compression clothing. But the problem with psychological is it's important it's impossible to disentangle that from whether or not people feel they're wearing compression clothing, therefore they should just feel better. And it's very much a placebo kind of effect. It's impossible to actually do a placebo con- study comparing compression clothing with non-compression clothing for obvious reasons. And so I think you've got to be really careful about the psychological stuff. Compression clothing clearly makes some people feel better about their leg soreness. That in itself might be a good thing. You can, it might be a good enough reason for you to go out and use compression clothing for that reason alone. But they are, there is certainly very limited evidence, and it says a trivial effect on actual performance times, as noted. They also suggest that there may be some very slight improvement in the variables, such as your time to exhaustion, um, your muscle temperature, and you and as the author the authors suggest, they should benefit from reduced muscle pain, damage, and inflammation during recovery. But actually, when I look at that graph, there is definitely a small effect that shows a delayed onset of muscle soreness. There's a small effect that shows, and several studies that show creatinine kinase which is often released when muscles are damaged but the confidence intervals do cross zero and there is a strong argument that a different author different set of authors might well have written there is a small effect visible but given the confidence intervals are wide it is difficult to know if this is a real effect or an artifact a bias that's within the studies an interesting paper and compression clothing certainly I wouldn't I wouldn't dismiss it completely. There's definitely a small positive effect size effect showing, but there often is with these kind of studies. And of course there's there's all sorts of things we haven't considered like publication bias. Studies which show no effect um of it, whatever it is, whether it's compression clothing or a drug, are less likely to get published. So it's normal to see small effect sizes within the literature, and you have to be very careful about assuming that they're real. Okay, folks, that is it. Thank you very much for listening. The show notes for this episode can be found at www.blocology.io forward slash 009. Please do leave a review and subscribe at Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcatcher. Any feedback is very welcome and you can leave comments, send email or make contact via Twitter, Facebook and the usual social media channels. They're all available at blocology.io. Thanks again.